So this is the, uh, the listening zone. So stop nattering at the back. <laughs> Great to have you here. Um, uh, and uh, we'll spend the next 20, maybe 25 minutes or so uh, just thinking together and reflecting uh, on, on Good Friday. So uh, I, I suspect, like you, have forgotten most of the school assemblies that I have been to in my life, even though there have been many. Uh, but uh, of the few that stick in my mind, uh, one was taken by a biology teacher uh, who went by the name of Mr. Elford. And Mr. Elford stood up in front of us and said, uh, at current market rates, the chemical constituents of your body are worth £8.71. Uh, even allowing for inflation, it's not a flattering figure uh, to put on a human being. Uh, and I think, and he went on then as a Christian, uh, to explain that our instinctive kind of thinking that that is not quite the right way to value a human being uh, is in fact correct. But how then to value the worth of a human being? Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever done uh, that imagination exercise where uh, you are asked to imagine 10 people in a balloon um, and they consist of people like a young child, a, an experienced political leader, a, a grandmother, uh, an educated philosopher, a farmer, a millionaire, that, that kind of thing. Um, and the problem is uh, the balloon is sinking uh, and two people must jump from the balloon in order to save the other eight. And you have to pick who those two are. Uh, and it surfaces all kinds of ideas about uh, what they're worth, because that's where you end up, who's worth most, they, we should keep them. Um, uh, it surfaces influence or, or potential or practical usefulness or wealth or, or, or something. And of course, nobody ever agrees as to quite the right way to value a human being. Uh, it's, it is a tricky thing to do. So perhaps a more revealing question is to ask how, in fact, people do subconsciously derive their own sense of worth and value. Uh, and we turn now to uh, the last week of Jesus' life uh, in Jerusalem in 33 AD. Uh, and there we see a range of people, and each of them is deriving their sense of worth from something different. Uh, the first people we see are uh, the people, the crowd, and to an extent, perhaps, Judas. Uh, they're excited. They're excited uh, because they are joining in with a political leader, they think, a potential political leader, who can lead a revolution and free them from the Romans. Uh, and, you know, of course, identification with or, or indeed... Uh, activism for a political cause can give a great sense of, of mission and worth, can't it? You know, uh, here I am working to transform society for the better. So that's the, the people and, and Judas. Um, Anas and Judas as well, again, uh, derive their worth also from money. Uh, the, the money-changing booths in the temple are known popularly uh, at that time as the Booths of Anas. 
And of course, Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, and, and in our own world, we, we have a, a, a kind of strong subconscious narrative that plays out in a whole variety of ways that the amount of money you have or earn is uh, something that defines your worth. You know, how much is he worth? Then there's Peter. Uh, now, Peter derives his worth from his loyal friendship with Jesus. You know, even if I have to die with you, I won't ever deny you. Uh, and there's something for us, isn't there, about our, uh, our kind of family and uh, uh, friendship relationships that is, is quite powerful in uh, kind of forming our sense of worth. You know, my father is, or I am married to, or my best friend is, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and then there's Anas again, and his son-in-law Caiaphas. They derive their worth from high and noble responsibility. They're chief priests, high priests, guardians of the sacred, of the matters of God himself. Uh, and that's one of the oldest approaches, I think, that humanity takes, isn't it? Uh, the idea that you derive your worth from uh, some kind of religious or uh, more broadly social importance in people's lives. Uh, and then there's Pilate. Uh, Pilate derives his worth from his position as a governor. Uh, he's accountable to the emperor for the governing the province, but he is all too well aware that the unstable nature of his province has the real potential to reflect badly on him and to lose him his job and prestige, to threaten his safety. Uh, and for many of us, of course, our position or, or lack of position uh, in society or in church or in employment or, so, or somewhere else, uh, they support or bring down our sense of worth. Uh, and then finally, uh, the soldiers. Uh, the soldiers derive their sense of worth from strength and military skill. They are members of an elite fighting unit under an oath of loyalty to the emperor who uh, the Romans called son of God. But these soldiers are stuck in a backwater province of the Roman Empire. They are threatened by a growing mood of militant revolution. They cannot quite stop. And in our world, we might say, well, my talents are being wasted. I am worth more than this. Or we might derive worth from living fast in the face of danger, a man on a perilous mission. All of these people come face to face with Jesus in his last week of life. And for all of them, he is, to quote one writer, a walking pressure dispenser. And before that pressure, their sense of worth crumbles. Judas and the people are disappointed. There is no revolutionary leader here. The movement that could have changed the world is taking a wrong course. Anas, of course, has his financial security quite literally overturned 
when Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. Peter realises he simply does not have the courage to follow through on his declarations. He cannot do what he should. Caiaphas encounters somebody whose claim to spiritual responsibility is 10,000 times greater than his own. Pilate is unnerved by someone who has no position and yet seems more in control of events than anybody else. Uh, And the soldiers are told to crucify someone who quite obviously poses no threat to them whatsoever, so they simply cannot justify violence in their hearts. And so all of them lash out. Judas betrays, Peter lies and despairs, Annas and Caiaphas hold a kangaroo court and resort to physical violence, Pilate wriggles this way and that, caught between his conscience and his position, and the soldiers, they gather the entire garrison to torture one man. Uh, As one writer puts it, everyone was trying to minimise the threat, manipulate events, and maximise their own survival, thus furthering their own vested interests. So that's the people who encounter Jesus. What about him then? He's at the centre of it all. Uh, This is a man whose sense of worth is so absolute that he can sound an altogether different note. Speaking from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Well, turn back to those words from earlier in his life, from Matthew chapter 13, uh, the treasure in a field uh, and a superb pearl. Uh, The two little sayings are are similar. Uh, In both of them, uh, um, somebody locates something of enormous value and sells everything they possess to get hold of it. Wise person. Uh, And, of course, they speak to us of the challenge that to follow Jesus is costly and risky, but it is the wise thing. But then the sayings diverge. The point of the treasure story is that the treasure is worth far, far, far more than the price paid. So following Jesus is like giving up a pound and gaining a million. The point of the pearl story is that following Jesus is incomparably superior to all the other options available in life, religious or otherwise, and is therefore worth the cost. But there is more to these stories than our response to Jesus. He asks nothing of us that he has not already done himself, and in greater measure. Uh, And so what what is the cost he pays, uh, and what is the treasure, the incomparable pearl that he bought? Uh, First, the cost. Um, Of course, impossible to describe in words. Uh, really, Um, but it involves his incarnation, uh, the the kind of descent of God from the throne room of heaven to a borrowed stable, uh, from glory and power to a frail human body. It it involves obedience uh, through an earthly life of 
costly prayer and fasting, uh, opposition and attack from spiritual and human forces, uh, family rejection, uh, uh, foolish and slow disciples, and so on. And in Holy Week, of course, where we now stand, it involves radical injustice to him. And then on the cross, above all, it involves pain. There is the physical pain of, of flogging, of thorns, of nails through wrists and ankles, of uh, the struggle to, to breathe, of lifting yourself up on your ankles and on your wrists so you have space to breathe, and then unable to bear the pain from those ankles and wrists, dropping back down. There is the heart pain of abandonment uh, by so many, by mockery, by nakedness, and by clothes being gambled away in front of your eyes. But most of all, there is spiritual pain. Uh, I mean, we, we, on the news, we shudder to see the wrongdoing that is uh, being inflicted in Ukraine. It is unbearable. Equally, on the individual level, it is hugely challenging for one person to face up to the weight of the knowledge of their own wrongdoing, despite our dulled consciences and imperfect understanding of ourselves and our intermittent fellowship with God. But for six hours, the guilt of the accumulated sin of billions was borne by one man whose conscience was undulled, whose understanding was perfect, and whose fellowship with the Father was spotless. And we, we simply cannot begin to imagine what that was like, except to say that it was pure hell. The sky turned black. A little later uh, in the New Testament, uh, Peter says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And then finally, the cost involves death. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Uh, Jesus spends Easter Saturday lying cold and still on a stone slab beyond any human aid or reach. He has completed his descent from the highest heights to the lowest depths. There is literally no way further down. There's nothing else of our humanity that he can share. So that's the cost. What then the treasure? What then the pearl? Well, the sayings here obviously talk about the kingdom of God, that time when Jesus sits down at the right hand of God with shouts of joy echoing around, the unleashing of divine forgiveness and light and life into a dark world, with the curtain that held it back torn in two. And in particular, it speaks of you and me. Uh, last night, my family and I watched uh, the film uh, Moses, Prince of Egypt. Uh, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's a fantastic film, uh, highly recommended. It tells the story, a phenomenal story of the escape of the, of the Hebrews, Hebrew slaves from Egypt, and the way God delivers them from Pharaoh. And it ends uh, with them on the far side of the sea, uh, free people, um, and, and, and that's the point at which the Bible records uh, the following uh, saying of God to them in Exodus chapter 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, 
If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And and the same writer, uh, Peter, as I quoted before, picks this up in the New Testament. But you, talking to those who follow Jesus, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So his treasure is you, his treasure is me, his treasure is us. It's not that somehow God looked at us and thought, my word, these are jolly fine people. They're innocent as the day is long. I must save them from their circumstances. None of the Holy Week characters are in that situation. Um, And the cross speaks of something far, far wrong with humanity. That, That somehow we have all strayed like sheep, strayed from God's purposes, strayed above all from God himself. Uh, Jesus pays the cost, not because of our worthiness, but despite our unworthiness. So the answer then to the question, how much does God think I am worth, uh, is deceptively simple in some ways. That much. You are worth that much. Because that is the price he paid for you. Uh, And three short points for reflection, uh, because that is a word of hope, that is a word of challenge, and that is a word of invitation. Uh, Firstly, a word of hope. Uh, It says to you and to me that the most important being in the entire universe values us far more highly than we can imagine. It is unbelievably good news that he has come to find us and paid an extraordinary price to save us and make us his own. I mean, that that alone is enough to deal a body blow to disappointments that might arise from other potential sources of worth, where perhaps we are lacking in our own eyes or in the eyes of the world, where we think we lack finance or beauty or status or power or strength or position. In the end, when the chips are down, what matters is that God paid that price so that he could say over us, my treasured possession. So it's a word of hope. Secondly, it's a word of challenge. Each of the people that we met earlier in the story were unable or unwilling or both to pay the cost that these sayings talk about, to gain the treasure and the pearl. They were so attached, for whatever reason, to their existing setups for deriving worth, they find themselves unable to let go. So the question for us is, well, when greeted with what we see during Holy Week, and especially on this Good Friday, is there something that arises in the back of our hearts, some allegiance whose contribution to our worth is subtle and unrecognized and perhaps quite understandable given your personal history, but which fights back against service to him. If so, now may be the time to recognize that, to name it, 
and to gently in your heart to lay it down to rest at the foot of the cross because then you can go forth from there in joyful and liberated service. And thirdly and finally, uh, it's an invitation. Uh, There is one character in the story we actually see change during the course of it. The centurion uh, is presumably one of the soldiers who had tortured and crucified Jesus. And yet by the end of the crucifixion, he is saying, surely this man was the son of God. Now that has big resonance for him because his oath of allegiance was to the emperor and the emperor was the one who was called son of God in the Roman Empire. To say surely this man was the son of God is to shift allegiance to Jesus. And the invitation to do that uh, rings out from the cross in all directions. Jesus put it very simply, Come, follow me. Uh, And whatever else that means, it means turning away from a life centred on ourselves and on the elements that we think give us worth and coming to him and holding out our hand and asking to come in because he and his kingdom are the incomparable pearl. We're going to have a short video It's a chance just to reflect. Um, It is uh, a video of part of the film The Miracle Maker uh, set to a song uh, and just gives you a chance to reflect and consider uh, and also for people to come back in uh, from earlier. Can we 